The House will come back on Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, they came back to work on Monday, and things did not get off to a great start. If you'll remember from last week's call, I said that the House was scheduled to take up 13 bills under suspension of the rules. Remember, the advantage of bringing up a bill under suspension is that it doesn't have to go through the regular committee process to get to the floor, as the regular rules require. We're suspending the rules, so a bill can come directly to the floor. But in exchange for that more lenient treatment, the threshold to pass a bill is raised from a simple majority to a two-thirds majority. Consequently, the House leadership only brings bills to the floor under suspension of the rules if they believe the bill will be popular enough to attract at least a two-thirds majority. And because the vast majority of these bills are non-controversial bills, like renaming post offices and such, many of them can be dealt with by voice vote. That is, unless somebody wants to make a point. Last Monday, Republican Chip Roy of Texas and the House Freedom Caucus wanted to make a point. He and his friends in the House Freedom Caucus believe the Democrats have been abusive in the way they've used their very slim majority to run the House. So, instead of greenlighting the House Democrat leadership's request to pass all the suspension bills by voice vote, he objected. That would have meant recorded roll call votes on each of the 13 non-controversial bills. Because of the COVID restrictions the House is operating under these days, in which members of the House vote in small groups so that large clusters of members are never together in the House chamber to congregate on the floor, a single recorded vote can take anywhere from half an hour to about an hour and 15 minutes. Roy's insistence that recorded votes be taken on each of the 13 bills resulted in Majority Leader Steny Hoyer making the decision to pull the bills from the floor. Roy and the House Freedom Caucus have not decided whether they want to continue using this tactic. It certainly got Hoyer's attention. In the end, the House only passed one resolution on Monday evening. It was the rule governing floor consideration of the two gun control bills and the PRO Act. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of the Senate amendments to H.R. 1319, the Coronavirus Relief Bill. Then the House moved to consideration of H.R. 842, the Protecting the Right to Organize, that is, the PRO Act. The House considered two on-block amendments offered by the committee's chairman, Representative Bobby Scott of Virginia. One was adopted, the other was defeated. Then the House voted by 225 to 206 to pass the bill. On Wednesday, the House took up the Senate amendments to H.R. 1319, the coronavirus relief package. The bill passed by a vote of 220 to 211, with one Democrat, Jared Golden of Maine's 2nd Congressional District, voting against. After that, the House took up and passed an amendment to H.R. 1446, the Enhanced Background Checks Act of 2021. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 8, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, and passed it by a vote of 227 to 203. Then the House took up H.R. 1446, the Enhanced Background Checks Act. That bill passed by a vote of 219 to 210. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House will return Tuesday. First votes are set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider 28 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, the House will consider H.J. Res. 17, removing the deadline for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. H.R. 1620, the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act. H.R. 6, the American Dream and Promise Act of 2021. H.R. 1603, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act of 2021. And H.R. 1868, to prevent across-the-board direct spending cuts and for other purposes. The House leadership expects that the last votes of the week will occur no later than 3 p.m. Friday. 
Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Tuesday and voted by 69 to 30 to invoke cloture on the nomination of Marsha Fudge to serve as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Then the Senate voted by 70 to 29 to invoke cloture on the nomination of Merrick Garland to serve as Attorney General of the United States. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm both of them to those positions. The vote on the Fudge confirmation was 66 to 34, while the vote on the Garland nomination was 70 to 30. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Michael Regan to serve as administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. The vote to confirm was 66 to 34. On Thursday, the Senate voted by 51 to 48, with Susan Collins of Maine crossing over party lines to vote with the Democrats to discharge the nomination of Javier Becerra to serve as Secretary of Health and Human Services from the Finance Committee, which had deadlocked at 14 to 14 on his confirmation last week. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Deborah Ann Holland to serve as Secretary of the Interior, and then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the confirmation of Deborah Holland to serve as Secretary of the Interior. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I'd anticipate we'll see cloture votes on the nominations of Isabella Guzman to be Administrator of the Small Business Administration, and Catherine C. Tai to be U.S. Trade Representatives. And I would not be surprised to see a vote to confirm Javier Becerra to serve as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Now to the Cuomo cover-up. We don't normally cover state-level politics in our Washington report. It's called a Washington report for a reason. But from time to time, things happen at the state level that merit our attention. One of those things that's broken through recently is what's happening with Governor Cuomo in New York. I'm not talking about multiple allegations of sexual harassment. I'm talking about nursing home deaths and the Cuomo administration's efforts to cover them up. I will simply point out that for those of you who may be interested in this particular subject, you'll find in this week's suggested reading, a Cuomo cover-up timeline put together by Steve Scalise's staff on the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, where he serves as the ranking minority member. Now, back to earmarks. Two weeks ago, I told you Democrats were bringing back earmarks, and the swamp was a little deeper that week than it was the week before. Earmarks, it was said, are the gateway drug to spending addiction. An earmark, for those who have forgotten, is, according to the Congressional Research Service, any congressionally directed spending, tax benefit, or tariff that would benefit an entity or a specific state, locality, or congressional district. For our purposes, we'll drop the tax benefit and tariff language. What we're concerned about is congressionally directed spending that benefits a particular entity or a specific state, locality, or congressional district. Earmarks, in other words, are individual spending projects tucked away into larger spending bills. By definition, they are special interest spending. They can be used by congressional leaders to bribe their members into doing things they otherwise wouldn't do, like, for instance, voting for massive spending bills. Remember former Congressman Duke Cunningham, the former naval aviator who many believe was the model for Tom Cruise's character in the movie Top Gun? He went to jail because he took bribes from lobbyists for inserting earmarks into spending bills. Remember lobbyist Jack Abramoff? He went to jail for working with members of Congress to insert earmarks into spending bills. Republicans banned earmarks when they took over the House in 2011, but now Democrats control both the House and the Senate, and they have the thinnest majorities in anyone's memory. Earmarks were the tools used by congressional leaders as the sweets to dangle, and they want them back. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer recently promised his members that earmarks would come back on a bipartisan basis. That is, he assured his Democrat colleagues 
that spending-hungry Republicans would join them in welcoming back earmarks. A few weeks ago, House Appropriations Committee Chairwoman Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut announced a proposal to restore what she called community project funding, otherwise known as earmarks. Under her proposal, earmarks would be capped at 1% of discretionary spending. That 1% is about $15 billion a year. And lawmakers would have to openly declare their requests for earmarked funding. No individual member could submit more than 10 project requests. All such requests would be posted online. No member or his family could have a financial stake in the project, and no for-profit entities could be a recipient of an earmark. So here's the deal. Even though they're in the minority, congressional Republicans have the power to determine whether or not earmarks come back. How? Because, as Wall Street Journal columnist Kimberly Strassel pointed out, earmarks get inserted into spending bills. And spending bills, whether we're talking about the 12 individual appropriations bills that Congress is supposed to use on an annual basis to fund the government, or the one or two big omnibus spending bills of the type we've seen for the last several years, have to go through the Senate with 60 votes. That means there has to be GOP buy-in in the Senate for any spending bill to pass. And that means that Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has the power, if he can unite his conference, to tell Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and anyone else who's listening that earmarks are not coming back because no Republican will vote for any spending bill that has earmarks in it and then be willing to engage in a shutdown showdown. Let the Democrats make the case to the public that they're shutting down the government because the Republicans will not allow the return of pork barrel spending. It's just that simple. If ever there were an issue to begin to once again show a difference between the two parties, this could be it. In the House, the members of the House Freedom Caucus are taking a hardline stand against the return of earmarks. The larger Republican study committee chaired by Jim Banks of Indiana is still considering the issue. Stay tuned. Now, to stealing a House seat. In November, after a recount of the ballots in all 24 counties of Iowa's 2nd Congressional District, Republican Marionette Miller Meeks was declared the winner over Democrat Rita Hart by six votes. On November 30, after the recount, the state's bipartisan Board of Canvas certified Miller Meeks's victory. But that wasn't good enough for Hart. She decided to challenge the results, claiming that 22 ballots that should have been counted were improperly excluded from the final tally. But she did not take advantage of Iowa state law to challenge the results at the state level. Instead, she claimed that the process called for under state law would not have left enough time to conduct a proper recount. So she used the Federal Contested Elections Act to bring a complaint directly to the House of Representatives. The largest newspaper in the state, the Des Moines Register, did not think well of Hart's decision to bypass Iowa challenge laws and go straight to the House of Representatives. Quote, in the best case scenario for Hart, wrote the paper's editorial board, the nonpartisan government accountability office conducts a recount with integrity. The lead flips to her and Democrats in the majority in the House Committee on, on Administration and in the full House vote to seat her sometime in 2021. That last part, where Democrats in power decide a Democrat won the election, is what will be remembered, end quote. That's certainly what was remembered the last time the House did this. That was back in 1985, when in what became known as Indiana's bloody eighth, Democrats in the House majority voted to unseat Republican Richard McIntyre, the state-certified winner of the 1984 contest between McIntyre and Democrat incumbent Frank McCloskey. 
House Republicans were so upset about being muscled out of a seat by sheer brute force that they left the House chamber en masse. The House Administration Committee, under the chairmanship of California Democrat Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, held a hearing last Wednesday on Hart's election contest. By a 6-3 vote, the committee voted to table a motion by Miller Meeks to dismiss the challenge. Miller Meeks' motion to dismiss the Hart complaint is still pending. Meanwhile, the committee will begin to investigate Hart's complaint. Asked at her weekly press conference the following day if there were a scenario where the state-certified results could be overturned by a vote of the House, Speaker Pelosi answered, quote, of course, end quote. Stay tuned. Now, finally, to immigration. You recall a few weeks ago when President Biden introduced his comprehensive immigration reform legislation, the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, we said it might be too big a bill to try to swallow in one bite, and congressional Democrats might decide to cut it into smaller pieces and take them on one at a time. Well, it's happened. Last week, House Democrats got back a whip count, and apparently it wasn't pretty. They're so far short of majority in the House that they've apparently decided not to bring the comprehensive legislation to the floor until they have enough time to build more support for it. In the meantime, they're going to begin the process of bringing the smaller bills to the floor. That's what's going on this week. We'll have two immigration bills on the floor. First is H.R. 6, the American Dream and Promise Act, which would create a pathway to legal status for so-called dreamers, illegal immigrants who were brought to the United States as children. The bill would provide conditional permanent resident status for 10 years, and block removal proceedings if certain conditions are met. Under the terms of the bill, DREAMers could obtain full lawful permanent resident status if they acquire a degree from a college or a university, serve at least two years in the U.S. military, or work for three years in positions where they had employment authorization for 75% of the time they were working. The bill also includes protections and a pathway to citizenship. Citizenship, not legal status. For certain individuals who had temporary protected status as of September 2017 or who had deferred endorsed departure status as of January 2021. Second bill up will be H.R. 1603, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which would create a process for agricultural workers to earn temporary status as certified agricultural workers for workers who have worked at least 180 days in agriculture over the last two years. Under the terms of the bill, spouses and children could also apply for temporary status. And that's our Washington Report for this week.